Welcome to American Girlies, the podcast where Canadian historians read the American Girl books. I'm Hannah Sparwasser Soroka. I'm Sonia Ann. And I'm Margot Mathieu. And today we're reading Happy Birthday, Samantha by Valerie Tripp, published in 1987. Yeah, how's everybody doing on this incredibly humid July morning? I know we end up talking about the weather a lot, but it, it does have an unreal impact on our lives. Incredibly damp. Oh my god. I'm damp. Tornado, tornado watch in Montreal, which is cool and fun. Again? Oh, that's, that's oh yeah. A good time. Especially cool and fun because I record from inside a cupboard, so I'm safe. <laughs> I'm next to a window, so I am not. and happy birthday samantha but do we want to do a quick rundown of what does happen yeah give us a summary okay plot summary here we go samantha has new relatives of some sort cousins i'm not really sure what they are they're cornelia's little sisters and they live with cornelia and guard for some reason and not their parents but whatever um and she's having a birthday party and they have a lot of ideas and thoughts about how everything should be done including like millions of cakes and ice cream and things like that and the birthday party is kind of lame until cornelia and guard show up with a puppy and then eddie next door ruins the ice cream for everyone because he's jealous of the party or some reason uh to make Samantha feel better, Cornelia invites her to New York City for the weekend to get ice cream at a fancy soda parlor. And on the way to the house in New York City, Samantha and Grammary see a suffragist protest. And they get to the house and the twins have ideas about taking the puppy out for a walk. And of course, when they do, the puppy escapes and they have to chase it through the whole of New York City to where, gasp, Cornelia is one of the speakers at said suffragist protest that was going on earlier in the day. After the speech, they all go get ice cream, where it turns out Grammary went to the protest too by accident, and now she thinks women should have the vote. What a delightful story. Also, they do find the puppy. I didn't include that, and I feel like people might be worried. The puppy is fine and safe. No no animals (laughs) were harmed in the making of this girly. I think now is also a good time to say that the puppy's name is J.I.P. So I'm going to say a slightly offensive word talking about the dog, and I'm sorry for that. We did not I name have, the dog. I have a lot of questions for yes, Valerie. Yes, I have so Trek many questions. <laughs> I have just, so many questions about why you would pick that of all names. So I think we should just call him the dog. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, little pups. Excellent. Perfect. <laughs> So, super fast, we're going to do a little history moment, um, talking about some of the themes that come up in this book. One yeah, of the major give us some ones, context. Yeah, so one of the big things that they're talking about, obviously, is women's suffrage, so fighting for the right to vote. 
which has a kind of complex history in North America because of the like varying different decisions and cultural norms of colonial governments in some places certain women might have had the vote from like the beginnings of their colonial government so from like the 17th century but this obviously like usually only applied to women who were widows or had never married and were legally entitled to inherit and own land and so were like considered persons this was rather rare so i think it's only in new jersey and then in um pre-english conquest quebec uh, because in the English-influenced world, women were not seen as independent persons, and so their votes were supposed to be done by their male caretakers, right? fathers, husbands, brothers, or sons, um, who were supposed to also be keeping track of their interests as well. It's whether they did. <clears throat> Probably not. Uh, so... By the 1870s, some women were attempting to vote because technically there were some arguments as to whether or not they were officially barred from voting, and they sued the U.S. government when they were denied. And one of those cases was Minor v. Happerset, which went to the Supreme Court in 1875. The Supreme Court ruled against them, and from then uh, the suffragists really began a, like, intense campaign to get an amendment to the constitution that would enfranchise women but from earlier in the 19th century women had been demonstrating and organizing for their rights uh see seneca falls which happened in 1848 some fun facts about uh the larger women's rights movement especially this campaign for a constitutional amendment uh, is the implementation of uh, weaponized racism. We'd love to, to see it. Mm. <laughs> so one of the concepts in this that people tried to implement uh, in trying to get this constitutional amendment, because each state has to sort of independently vote on amendments in this like very specific way, there was a specific campaign to get Southern states to vote on this. Southern states in particular post- Civil War were particularly opposed to any sort of like federal laws, um, but also specifically any sort of changes to the Constitution because they were all, you know, states' rats. So, one of the major campaign theories uh, was like the early system of the, the Southern strategy, which obviously comes to fame uh, in the mid 20th century, where essentially it was to like pit white people against black people and the major movement here was to to assure white men that uh giving women the vote would not further enfranchise black men but only enfranchise white women who would then vote in the interest of white people rather than women as a whole uh which was a, a sort of huge, also a huge shift in the mindset, the the motivations of the women's rights movement, which came out of early abolitionist movements and had really been about universal suffrage for everyone in North America or everyone in the U.S. specifically, sorry, and that it was really going to be about like regardless of race, everybody was going to get the vote. Um, obviously, this creates a major divide in the um, 
women's rights movement and uh create i have a i actually have i have a question about yes. the women's rights movement because the mm-hmm. kind of model of suffragists that i've that most people i think have been exposed to is like mrs banks and mary poppins and like the british model where women were chaining themselves to railings and we're going on hunger strike in prison and we're trying to bomb uh, prominent misogynists. Do you see that kind of outbreak of violence in the States or is it really kind of a different tactical world? Um, it's so there are a few, a few moments um, that are like that. There's, and we've talked about this before in a couple of other peak, like of our like peek into the past um, where or no, we talked about it on our break time. Damn it. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about it before where um, various meetings for women's rights were like bombed and attacked. And so women who are organizing for this were often like the subject of, to, often subjects to violence. Um, but for the most part, this was mostly like peaceful protesting and organizing and like campaigning in that way there is during the first world war there are a couple of protests that happened directly outside picketing the white house which had not been done before up to that point and it was in the middle of like this big diplomatic meeting with russians and so the women were all arrested and then they went on hunger hunger strike and were force fed which is a like horribly violent like really painful situation um and it ended up in all of these newspapers and became this huge scandal so that does happen the main thing that happens is that the first world war really pushed this movement ahead sort of across the world the first nation to fully enfranchise women was new zealand but then like because of the integral role that women played very publicly in the war movement most countries sort of started even during the war enfranchising women and the u.s was sort of pushed forward because of that and by 1917 there is a proposal for the constitutional amendment it has to be voted on like three times they have to bring it before congress multiple times before it is eventually passed in 1920 and then um, women across the U.S. have the vote. It's both earlier and later in Canada, uh, where by 1920, almost all of the provinces, uh, women have the vote, except for Quebec, Quebec. where it's 1940. 1940. And also in Canada, if you were an Indigenous woman, you didn't have the franchise until 63. Indigenous or Asian. So, yeah, this is, we think of this, yeah, we think of our franchise as something that we are born into, uh, but actually, for some people in our societies, like for for everybody in Quebec, that right is less than a hundred years old, and then for a lot of people, it's less than sixty or seventy years old. Yeah, so that is the history of enfranchisement and women's suffrage in North America. So how did we all feel about happy birthday, Samantha? This was a very disjointed book. I don't know if you both felt 
the same way, but it felt like too many things were happening in like a 50 page children's book. Yeah, I was asking about suffragist ta- tactics mostly because I was like, I don't know how I feel about this book. <laughs> I feel very tired after reading this book. Yeah. I Like I think the first thing we have to address is Guard and Cornelia get engaged in the previous book. And, and now in this book they're, they're just fully already married. Yeah. So I can't how believe fast they denied was us. the turnaround? Also, why did we not get to see One the wedding month engagement? No, no, because he <laughs> says in the at the end they say when will the wedding be and he says we'll have it in June. Samantha, will you be a bridesmaid? Yeah. Oh, and right. so the wedding is in June. So Samantha's birthday is at some point post June, but still summertime. So I'm assuming well, it says it says it's a springtime story. Also, and hold June on, hold, hold on, because Samantha, at the beginning of the book, remember, she says, Grand Mary makes me wear long underwear from September until the end of June, and she's putting on her long underwear, and then the, the twins, the evil twins, tell her, like, no, you don't have to wear that, it's too hot outside, so it's still June, so, so Gard and Cornelia, like, two like days after they yes, got married, like, they've, they've been married for 15 15- we just missed it, and I'm 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 very disappointed because I think that would have been a fun book to have a 1904 wedding and Samantha's little bridesmaid, and it would have been very cute. I mean, yeah. the other but solution no, instead is, we get this. The other instead we get this that, nonsense is that Valerie Tripp didn't read the previous novel. <laughs> yeah. We yes, would never imply I, such a thing. That is absolutely unacceptable to me. Well, Fifty um, pages. It has, it has get it to together. Be a birthday book. So. Well, yeah, but I mean, Kirsten's birthday book was like yeah, making a quilt. Is <laughs> this an afterthought? Time. It's like my mom's pregnant. Also, I'm making a quilt. Final chapter birthday party. Yeah, yeah. this one was a lot more birthday centric. But can I can I scoot back to Sonia's mention of the evil twins? Yes, we need to oh, start God. because this book opens with the evil twins, and it was too much. I'm so glad that you guys hate them too because they reminded me so much of like a couple of friends that I had as children where it's just they start saying something and then regardless of how awful it is or how much you don't want to do it they will like force this issue and then you all get in trouble and you're like I was trying to be good and quiet in my own little autistic child corner and you want to go and wreak freaking havoc I was so anxious this whole book because of these children these these specific kids yeah there's that kind of kid who has never heard no and so Mm -hmm. when they're over at your house they're just pestering your parents being like can we go do this can we go to the park can we go to that can we do that my mom says i can watch a movie on saturday afternoons and my parents were just like totally like my introvert parents were totally bowled over by this or just like not even asking your parents they just start doing something and then you're like hey that's not like cool at my house and then you end up in trouble because your friend sucks anyway yeah and or you're like just talk about how in previous books you know grand mary is this like strict woman who like you know, she runs a tight ship, but suddenly she's fine with these kids, like Cornelia's sisters, coming out of nowhere and being like, yeah, we hacked up your rose bushes and also tore up a petticoat. And like, we're demanding 10 cakes for the birthday instead of one regular cake. And you're like, 
You're telling me so, that Grand Mary wouldn't have a thing or two to say about this? You're telling me that there would not be well, but some, there is a kind some of amount thing, of... A pattern I notice here is that people are totally unwilling to discipline someone else's child. True. So, like, the twins tear up Mr. Hawkins's rose bush. They bully Mrs. Hawkins into making them putty four instead of a cake. Uh, and molding the ice cream, which is a ton of work. It's such a stupid yeah. thing to do. Uh, and then Eddie Rylance comes over, bullies his way into helping with the ice cream, bullies his way into having some, and then ruins the rest of it for everybody else. And at no point is anybody punished for this. Like, at no point does Uncle Guard say, well, I'm going to go over and talk to Mrs. Rylance about this. This is not, this will not do. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, it's just such a stark contrast to, like, last time where we see, like, Elsa, like, telling off Samantha and, like, tearing down her snowflakes to now it's suddenly, like, of course children can just run, run amok and do wild. whatever. And there's I an do... element. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Margo. Oh, well, so this might, like, change the topic just slightly, but I do want to talk about there's a, a moment where. I think we can get an entry point into the historical accuracy of this because the illustrations of the twins made me insane. Yes. Why was their hair cut off? I guess this is my question. Why is she little book. orphan Annie? Yeah, they're described in the book as having curly red hair, but 1904 is what a decade before the Bob, before it was appropriate for women to cut their hair, and there's like three other girls at the party who were also sort of depicted as having this short curly which would have been super popular in 1980s yep like hairstyle and it it drove me insane because like i get that this isn't part of the text of the book but it is a big part of the book and while the like giant bows and the having your hair like braided and put up in a specific way was like definitely a thing and so, like, talking about the bows and stuff is appropriate. The having their hair sheared super short, not at all. No. Um, so in this period, though, the 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 thing that I want to, like, talk about here is that there there is a system for how girls wear their hair, right? right? Where it is curled and mostly loose for their childhood. And then when they enter their teens, they start braiding it or wearing it in like this sort of half up style. And it's not until you're you come out or are like eligible to be married that you wear your hair all the way up. Um and so it is like this and this is like common And for this like, is in the peak a into long the past. time. But this is is it in the beginning? Yeah, they talk the about how they, girls they wore their hair down about... and then started putting it up as yeah, they grew yeah, up. Okay. Yeah, but so yeah, it's, it's mentioned there. So then, why would you have this whole? And it's like this huge thing, especially in this period, having tons of hair and curly hair, and especially dark hair. Especially having dark hair is super, super fashionable, and having a ton of it. So you would yeah. never cut your hair. It's a like in the midst of the war and post-war moment where cutting the hair happens, bobbing hair becomes a yeah. thing, and it's this big, like, cultural shift. This is so, the like, era of brush your hair a hundred times. Yeah. Yes. Why do they have all these girls but with also, no hair? But circling but also, back to these girls, 
Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Sonia. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, since we have been talking about, like, the illustrations from the birthday party and, like, all these girls with short hair, we should probably move on to the birthday party, which is in chapter two. Yes, this is what I wanted to kind of dig into a little bit, because the birthday party is awkward and horrible. Yes. They don't know what to do because there's so much pressure on them to act like little ladies. Yes. And they're supposed to, and, and I think there's like a way in which the twins are acting more grown up than they are, like bossing around the servants is like, oh, they're going to do that. That's what they were born to do. Mm-hmm. Like they were, Gross. quote unquote, bred for this. Um, But it's just not their time yet. And that's what's like, Mrs. Hawkins is like, right, no, I do have to do what you say in s- 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But okay, fair enough. I'll do it now. And yeah, and that's all in service of this horrible birthday party. Yeah, I found it very interesting that this birthday party is portrayed as the girls sit in a circle with their dolls because everyone brings their doll. They awkwardly <laughs> try to have conversations. Samantha opens her presents and then they go inside and have like lemonade and sandwiches and then they have cake and then they bring out the ice cream and the ice cream is ruined because eddie has put salt into it and i just found it kind of bizarre because at this point right like yeah they're not going to be a girl's birthday party is not going to be a bunch of rough housing or anything like that but they would have had party games like there would have been you know Okay, yeah. now it's time to play charades. Now it's time to... In the last to... book, yeah. they, the, the whole point of the party that Samantha was supposed to attend is that there's going to be magic tricks and charades. Yeah, like yeah. this and is a well-to-do family. Grand Mary like, would have hired some kind stuff. of... Yeah, and like possibly okay. some kind of entertainment, yeah, right? Okay. Like someone... Yeah, there would have been all kinds of little activities. And I don't understand why this book decided to present the birthday party as being this like horrible boring awful thing yeah and well yeah and to i think in service of getting them to new york which then is just like a totally different book like yeah that was the other thing is i didn't understand about like the the suffragists and all of that um but once they get to new york i think there is a moment there where I do want to talk about this. There's a question that I have sort of about these books. And one of the things that I think is part of why we like Samantha so much more than Kirsten. Mm -hmm. Because, right, so when they're running through the city or when she's traveling through the city or sort of when anything's happening in the city, we get all these descriptions of sort of what's going on around them. So we see like the fire trucks, we see her like riding in this carriage, the people in the parks, the sort of weirdness of the parks being totally fenced in, how they're they're dressing throughout the day what is like their acceptable exercise all of these kinds of things that are just like building this world around them that I think does that like well right it builds the world well but Kirsten's story had a lot of things that were like needed a lot of explanation like yeah colonialism and like indigenous nations and all of these things that you needed explanation and either they weren't explained at all or they were explained really poorly and 
so I think that like one of the things that we'd like about at least this is my my hypothesis and I would love for you guys to weigh in on like I think that we like Kirst we like Samantha because the history parts are more sort of about exposing children to this world of the past yeah where like this is what would have been done or this is what your life would have looked like and sort of felt like rather than here are these like specific moments in history where we have to explain all of these things because kirsten like really really doesn't do that well yeah no no and and also i I feel like the things in kirsten that need explaining the things that don't need explaining like what's a baby um like what what what's a train uh those things get over explained to the point of exhaustion and the things that do need explanation like what happened to the buffalo that doesn't feature at all and with samantha there's a lot more attention to even though samantha is incredibly privileged and lives a really sheltered life there's a lot more attention to the fact that her experience is specific and anomalous and i think that does better at exposing the kids to the kind of broad swath of that era if that makes sense and whereas i think kirsten just wanted us to have like postcard images i don't know sonia if that makes sense to you yeah i think that Samantha, the Samantha books typically seem to do a much better job of getting into the little details, right? Like in the previous episodes, we've talked about like, oh yeah, they have their little, you know, I took my my cucumber and watercress sandwich to school for lunch. And like, this is like how my, this is how I'm getting dressed with my like puffy sleeves and my long underwear because it's cold out. And that's like, you know, part of your daily uniform or like going into those little details of like, you know, okay, let's look into the shop window and see what's on display at Christmas time. And I I do think that that's why the Samantha books tend to feel a lot more real. And I think, and and sort of more, they, they do a good job of paying attention to the little details to then expose kids to this kind of idea of the past and like, introducing them basically to the concept of like yeah the world used to be very very different and things that are normal now didn't used to be normal like even all the little conversations they have about like oh airplanes those newfangled (laughs) inventions yes you know and and in samantha all the all the problems arise from the historical from the world she's living in right so the problem of what happened to jesse arises from the fact that she lives in a society where pregnancy is heavily stigmatized and black people have to live in segregated neighborhoods. Um, Yes. You know, the the problem of Nellie's doing badly in school arises from Nellie's context having worked in factories in her early childhood. Whereas in Kirsten, the problems are imposed by the external force of the writer. Yeah, it's it's well, a lot of poor decision making on, well, it's not, on but it's multiple not poor, people's fault. But it's not uh, on poor decision. Part. But the decisions aren't arising from I'm I misread the document because I don't read very good English yet because I'm Swedish and so I made a mistake. Yeah. Or yeah. um you know, I 
I accidentally shot the thing that was going to be singing Bird's Dinner, and now her family is hungry. Like, there's no, there's no kind of immediate, like, the problems don't arise from within the characters or within the world around them. They are imposed onto the world around them. Kind of like in the Hunger Games map, right? Where they're like, we're going to drop the murder dogs on this part of the map. We're going to drop a house fire on the Larson family. Exactly. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. That's a very historian-y take to say that, oh, yes, well, the contradictions are arising from within the society. Uh, Well, so, but I think, like, I mean, that's one of the things that we're, like, doing here, right? Is, like, how does this how do these books actually educate and it does feel like kirsten is not i mean so she's an empty sack of nothing but even like the parts of her that are an actual character and i don't know if we're spending too much time on kirsten in a book the podcast about samantha but kirsten the parts of her that are like a person or a character feel very um out of step with the world that she lives in right she wouldn't think of a raccoon as something to bring inside or something to care for yeah you know like there's just there's certain things that like wouldn't even be like a part of her like frame of reference or ideology or way of like seeing the world at all and like having a cat inside for an extended period of time like wouldn't be part of that much less let's bring a raccoon inside in the middle of winter so like yes. there are those things I think are like that's what's really frustrating because like so much of it is problems that arise because Kirsten's being an idiot for like plot reasons and those things seem to make her deeply out of step with her world right bears yes are cute in this period they are the subject of horror stories like raccoons aren't something that you bring inside animals aren't something that you bring inside unless it's like something that you have to keep alive for food right like it's the depths of winter and our pigs are going to freeze so we're bringing them into the house like that's what Um, we're working with now and circling back i was gonna say circling back to samantha it strikes me in this one that she's There are ways in which, right, she's very different from a lot of the other Mount Bedford girlies. She befriends a servant. She is Mm -hmm. kind to the staff in her house, right? She's kind to Mrs. Hawkins. And then being exposed to the twins, whose names are Agatha and Agnes, because that's super fun for the reader to not be able to tell them apart. Um, (laughs) They're twins. They're basically one person. It's fine. They kind of, they almost speak... synchronized it's a little creepy Um, but they are also not like the new bedford girls and we're getting this context of like city girls versus suburban girls and these city girls have all these ideas about like what is the cool food to serve and what are the games we play and how do we move through the world sonia you're gesticulating well then we turn it over to you Yes, because this is something else I wanted to talk about is, have you noticed in both of these book series, we have a moment where the main character goes to New York City specifically. And I think it's interesting that they both end up getting lost and alone and afraid and bad things happen to them. And I think that this is just such a fascinating little microcosm of like, 
it's simultaneously the city is portrayed as being like exciting and big, but also dangerous and terrifying. And isn't it better to be in your suburban slash rural life? Because that's that's where all the bad, dangerous things happen. Yes, I like I, I, I have feelings about the portrayal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think we are all of us city dwellers. Yes. And so when she's talking about like, I'm so excited to go see the big city. I was like, yeah, me too, kid. I'm also, yep. I am also sick of Mount Bedford. Right. But then they get there and it's like immediately a crisis because well, it's there's, like, there's... oh no, we went to the park and now our dog has got off the leash because we were idiots. Because we let go of the leash. Mm-hmm. And then he almost dies being run over by a fire truck. And it's like, oh, wow, this is so different than Mount Bedford when he was just running in my backyard. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's how that works. Yeah. Hold on also, to the leash. But also the idea that three girls just can take off walking through the park on their own with their dog and their dolly and like that they can do. That that basically there's this way in which the New York girls have all this gumption and, and like they're yeah. demanding and they want your attention and it feels like a very 1980s like, oh, New York girls, they're so bossy. Uh, yeah. It's a dangerous city, so they have to be when it's like these are still incredibly sheltered kids like they they live yeah. in a world that is entirely free from consequences. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it, it's a very bizarre choice. And now I'm very interested if if New York City is going to make an appearance in the other, <laughs> in, in our other upcoming books. Because I'm like, this has been like a weird trend. So, like, like if yeah, I had you... a nickel for every time an American girly went to New York City and then got lost slash lost their dog slash some kind of chase scene through the city, <laughs> I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird it happened twice. Yeah. yeah, and, I mean, and I, the... so I did like it as a part to talk about like these are familiar things that yes. are functioning different. So like New York City now has a subway, but they see the streetcars, and the streetcars are being yeah. pulled by horses, and they see a fire truck, and the fire truck is being pulled by a horse. I do like also the little detail that a lot of the subway system was overhead at this point. Yeah, and they were still coal powered, so you would get like soot. Yeah. rained down on you sometimes which is why they so switched like over the, because they were like we can't we can't live like this those are the moments where i was like oh this is like building like a world quite nicely yeah like to be clear i'm not saying it was the worst portrayal possible but it was just like a strange choice for like no, we're I'm going to go to the city because we're going to go to like the ice cream parlor and like see how people live here and whatever and then it instead of doing uh, instead of focusing on those kinds of things it's we went to the park and the dog ran away like just sort of a missed opportunity i think yeah well this is the thing that they they go to new york and instead i mean they show us a lot of new york but it's like and then they made a left on this street and then they ran that way and then the fire truck and then yeah <laughs> and like i found that i i wonder if we could do a map of how many how many kilometers these girls ran chasing after oh, this dog I did just check it it's a 10 minute walk I was like, oh how far there was like a six this? page chase but also yeah it's uh, like four blocks i want to talk about grand mary's shopping excursion 
because she says, I'm going to O'Neill's. And Cornelia's like, well, what if you went to, there's a great place on Fifth Avenue. And she's like, oh, no, I would never go that far. (laughs) And she's like, I've been going to O'Neill's for 30 years, so I can't change now. (laughs) Can someone who has lived in New York give me context on what that is in the period, in the history of the city, that, like, going above Fifth Avenue is, like breaking the sound barrier oh we just simply cannot like what what's Um, why i don't know about specifically this space but there is um so during the 19th century this is a a thing that i think is we've we've mentioned in a few other of our like wheel of the year pods um during the 19th century when new york is industrializing a lot of the like super wealthy move out of what was then the actual city um up into this like suburban area on manhattan um, because most of the island wasn't covered and stuff at the Mm -hmm. beginning of the century like montreal Um, yeah 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 so most of the island's not covered it's just like lower manhattan and that's where they start like industrializing, building the factories, putting them next to where the harbor is and stuff, and it becomes dirty and gross, and people start making buku bucks, and so they move to these big, big houses with huge yards just outside of the city, and they like fence them in, and there's this whole like change in how people are living, and as the city then like over the course of the century explodes and the population explodes and they start building more and more buildings those houses and those neighborhoods also become urban in a way that they hadn't been before and so then by the turn of the 20th century you have the entire island of manhattan is like covered in urban like densely packed buildings and parks and stuff and that's how i mean like you have people who live like that now on manhattan where if you have enough money like you never leave uptown manhattan or like you never go past midtown so like that's i think that that's totally like an accurate description of how somebody who's like super wealthy who's essentially doing the uh who's the what's the maggie smith's character in downton oh the dowager yeah the dowager countess yeah that's essentially you know what grant Grandmary's doing here where it's like why would I need to go to another store like when this store is here and like it's probably they're talking about like a Macy's or something like that you know department stores these new kinds of department stores that are being built up and that's I would be like really interested in if they go to a department like I think that would have been really cool in well this uh, is this this is is what I'm saying I find it very strange that they go to a large city where they could have done things like going to a restaurant, to a department store, to like, they could have gone to Central Park even. Like, just anything that isn't, let's run through the streets and look for our puppy. Like, why? Yeah, I wish that- Waste. So honestly, I think that they could have just not spent the time on the birthday party that they showed and done more with like building the world by like spending time at the soda fountain. Um, Well, also most department stores- most department stores, like well, like fancy department stores at this period, would have had an ice cream parlor on top. Yeah, like, yeah. There it would have been, been a whole experience. Yeah. Well, and I guess this brings us kind of to the big theme of the book, which is change versus 
tradition, right? That Grand Mary's position at the beginning of the book is, well, we just should do things the old fashioned way. We don't have to do it the new way. The new ways are silly and frivolous. Voting isn't a task for ladies. They should stay home. Yeah, which is really Um, funny because Grand Mary really doesn't give off trad wife vibes like grand mary's vibe is very much like i rule this goddamn roost gardener yeah and what gets me is she goes to one one suffragist rally by accident and suddenly it's like you know what guys women should have the vote like, yeah. But I think, actually, I think Cornelia, that's... you changed my mind. <laughs> well, I think it's really a, a funny arc because Grand Mary acts like she knows everything and like, oh, well, I've heard of this and it's no good. How has she heard of suffragists? Like, is she getting... Like, what newspapers is she getting in Mount Bedford, right? Like, so she's yeah. probably got a really narrow view of the issue, but of course isn't willing to admit it. Goes yeah. to one rally where she probably gets like a little bit high off the solidarity vibes and is like, oh my god, all the girlies are here. I'm one of the girlies for the first time in her life. And is like, that's it. I'm converted. Chain me to the railing. Like. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it just she... felt like a very fast shift. Oh, like I could have super... seen maybe a like, you know what, Cornelia, like maybe we disagree, but I I can respect you. I could see something oh, no. like that after one rally being like, you know what, I can, this is your life and I can respect that this is something that you care about, but just a full, full 180, just a full well, but, women's rights. Let's go. But also her reason for not being a suffragette, like the reason why women opposed women's suffrage were like, yeah. well, I, I'm, I'm not smart enough. I rely on my husband or were things like, I am a different, I am a soft, gentle creature who is above the world of squabbling politics. Like the female suffragettes or female anti-suffragists had arguments that were about how women are are inferior slash not suited to politics. Whereas Grammary's argument is just like, like, well, we've always, we've never voted. Why would we start? There was another, there's a really good Um, quote that I found while doing the like basic research for the little history bit um, which was this woman who wrote a period like a a opinion piece in a newspaper about like the southern states approving the amendment the constitutional amendment and she was like our society it was like even after the civil war our society hasn't fallen so far that white men can't be trusted to run our government if yeah. ever like our society falls to such ruin then of course i would say that like women need to step up and start putting things right but like our men are still like upholding all of these these rules and it's it was this wild thing about like our white men are still good enough to do this as long as they're still oppressing black people i see no reason why i should get involved exactly well and i think this is also right like as we've talked about before we're seeing this kind of shift away slowly shift away from the victorian like angel of the hearth idea right and the separate spheres and like the idea that like 
proper ladies are not supposed to like be sullied by the public world you know well and so that is like part of the argument that is like used but there's also this other like big concern that like male anti-suffragists had yeah which was that women were going to if women could vote they were going to cause the government to have to consider all of these things that women care about yeah and that they had done all of these polls and read all of these articles in women's magazines and were like, if women get the vote, we're going to have to like create laws banning child labor. And we're going mm-hmm. to have to like create laws limiting the hours that women work. And we're going to have to consider equal pay and all of these things. And they were like, that's going to destroy our businesses. Yep. And so women can't vote because they care about these women's things, which I think then is wild to like. So you see those articles and then you see these women saying like, well, but my men care about me and vote yeah. my interest. And it's like clearly not because the men here are saying like, if they get the vote, we'll have to care about the women's things. Yeah. I was like, well, apparently they don't give a shit about your your concerns because and they're, I think- they're so worried about having to listen to you. And I think to round it all off, um, rather than when the girls finally meet up in the park, they find the dog, they find Cornelia, Cornelia's giving her her suffragist speech, she comes down, talks to them. To explain women getting the right to vote, it is compared to, you know, the kids are like, well, but we broke a rule about letting this dog off of his leash, and you want to break rules about women voting. So these are equal things. And Cornelia's explanation is like, well, but what you did was a dumb mistake. And I've actually given this some thought. And I'm like, number one, wild comparison. And (laughs) like literally insane comparison. Like literally, oh, we're letting the bitches off the leash and now they're going to vote us out. Like (laughs) literally, that's where I went with my brain. Same. Same. And I'm like, what a deranged thing to put into a children's book. Um, And also the fact that instead of saying anything along these lines, because it's not like the Samantha books have shied away from like political stuff. Like we had the jungle for children like two, (laughs) two episodes ago. And now suddenly it's like we can't have Cornelia say something like, you know, women should have the right to vote because we are, you know, as we were just talking about, Margot, like agitating for reforms to child labor, reforms to labor, like Mm -hmm. for uh, like women's pay, right? Like looking at things like- Or even like- anything. To say to them, like, you don't think that rotten Eddie Rylance is more of a person than you are, right? Yeah. Yeah. He sucks, but he can vote. In, In eight years, he can vote and you can't unless, like, I'm doing this for you. Yeah, I'm doing this for me and I'm doing this for you and I'm doing this because we are not inferior to men even though they've been telling us this. Like yeah. that would be so don't, powerful. They and don't yet. even show any of her speech. Like it yeah. happens off page which is super frustrating. Like it would have been a nice little thing to have in there of like and of Lynn like Samantha and the other girls like looking up to her and being like oh well like we could be like Cornelia in the future yes. no it's just about like I'm gonna push my doll in a pram 
or whatever. Yep. Which well, is but also, also she's like, I love Cornelia. She wants to fly in a plane, but there's never like, I love Cornelia. She's out there risking arrest and force feeding so that one day I can vote. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, do we want to talk about the peak of the past real quick? Yes, let's do yes. it. I know I you thought it was had fine. qualms, Margot. My thing was, and I don't know, I think you guys have made some good points in our like pre-episode talk, but I just felt like a jarring shock when I went from the end of this book all about the suffragist movement and like the big protest and the fact that they were like literally shutting down streets uh, to oh yes and then this is what childhood was like and girls and boys wore dresses and this is how they did their hair and then of course that like terrible one line where it's like by the time they were 15 girls were wearing corsets to keep their figures trim it's like that's not necessarily what corsets were for but sure so like uh, that was that was my that was my issue. I didn't think that anything aside from the the corset comment uh I didn't think that anything was like inaccurate. It was just like why is it with this book? No, I um, I thought this was a was a like I made sense to me why it was with this book because it was about womanhood and girlhood and femininity mm-hmm. and it was about the kinds of expectations that girls were faced with. And yeah. uh, I don't know, I thought on that basis, it kind of delivered like it. It did a nice job outlining what Samantha would have understood to be the expectations of her. Um, yeah. And on that basis, I, just, I think it, I, I think that if it was going to like do that, if that was like the reasoning for it, I would have liked for it to have ended on like notes about the suffragist movement which i'm not oh yeah it doesn't really link back to anything it's just like yeah they would have gone to finishing school maybe or something but it was the same gotten married a really similar thing happened in the happy birthday kirsten uh well and this is what i wanted to say because i think it's similar to the way that um you know samantha learns a lesson even though most of the actual book is focused around like child labor. The peak into the past is still about school in 1904. And I think this is the same sort of thing where like they had predetermined peak into the pasts where it was like, okay, for the birthday book, we talk about being born and childhood and like growing up. And I, I do think that like it, it relates kind of, but I do think that there should have been something more about the suffragist movement. There should have been something a a little bit more concrete for me to be fully on board. I agree. Uh, I agree with that. I think think it would have been nice to have a suffragist thing uh, or to make it about the suffragists. Um, I wonder if they have the same, if they had the same person do both the peak and the plot. Yeah, this I is wouldn't what I'm... be surprised if they farmed out the peak into the past to yeah. one researcher and then had someone else write a story and then yeah. had someone else do the illustrations, which is how we get a peak into the past that talks about how girls' hair was really long and then mm. a story where they have short hair and then illustrations where they have bowl cuts. 
Yeah, not quite it feels bowl cuts, very but much they have like, like no one was talking to each other in the production of these books. Like it was just multiple yeah. people working on multiple aspects of it and then just putting it all together at the end. But I will say there's nothing in this that I object to. Like the corset no, thing no, is no, inaccurate. Not like, like it's not accurate to the point of corsetry, which is... No, but it's also one sentence in a whole thing that is totally fine. Yeah, yeah. and I mean again, I just you, felt it was meh. It was it was completely fine. No notes. No like, yeah. you know, which like fine. honestly is pretty gold oh, standard for yeah, American girl novel. I think that's why <laughs> yeah. I came away from it being like, oh, it's great. We did to be clear, a solid justify child labor or genocide. <laughs> yeah, meh is fine. Um, on that note, then do we want to rate our lovely book here? Yes. yes. So out of five picket sign holding feminists, <laughs> five Mrs. Mrs. Banks, five suffragists, how how are we rating our book? I'm gonna start us out real low with a with a two. You get two oh. Mrs. Banks from me because this is my my problem. I this is plot issues aside. Mm-hmm. There were so many missed opportunities in this book mm-hmm. to the point where I'm like, it didn't feel like there was enough like historical meat and potatoes to actually yeah. justify this being a good like pedagogical tool. Mm-hmm. So that's that took off two Mrs. Banks. And then one of the Mrs. Banks is dropped specifically because I'm bitter about the wedding. Yes. Give me the 1904 wedding. Like, it would have been yeah. so much better. We but, want yeah. lace. I want lace. I want frills. I want nonsense. I want Samantha to be a bridesmaid. I want... The opportunity was right there. And you threw it away. The same way that the opportunity is right there to be like, let's see a department store. Let's see how different the city is from, like, Mount Bedford. And instead, they're like, dog chase. You get dog chase. <laughs> I'm like, why? Yeah. So it's it's a two for me. I would not use this as like a teaching tool, really. Like it's a fine story ish, but like not well, not for teaching. Yeah, it's a two for me as well. And that's also I would not give this to a child because there's nothing there to talk about. Like in terms of children's books about suffragists, like yeah. children's yeah. entertainment, like sit them down in front of Mary Poppins, they will have a better idea of what the women's for, vote for women's movement was about. Like, yeah. yeah, I had a little eyewitness book about the famous five in Canada that taught me Yeah, all I, like, it was, I mean, it was nonfiction, but it you get the point. There's better media for learning about the key issues in this book. And, like, the other concern I have about handing this to a child is that they're going to start demanding I bake them petit four and, <laughs> like, I, I'm not. my rose bush. Get yeah, out of here. Uh, they lose three points for specifically Eddie Rylance and the Demon Twins. <laughs> yeah, I was going to give it a three just because it was super boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I think that the conversation that I would end up having with a kid afterwards would not be about history. It would be about how to deal with f- friends who try to force you to do things that you don't want to do. <laughs> Yeah, like and it doesn't even that handle that well. No, it like doesn't. if it she, handled Samantha it well, just deals with all of the things. Samantha has to take on all of the like 
like she tells them not to do it they do it anyway and then she takes responsibility for all of it yeah. right yeah like she has to abandon her little cart that she gets I for know. her birthday like all of that stuff I was so angry for her um, and then she's the one who like owns up to like running away when they get to the uh, to the protest and everything yeah. and I'm like Samantha you this was not your fault like these girls suck and you shouldn't hang out with them anymore <laughs> so how many suffragette sashes are you giving it uh, yeah so maybe like two and a half yeah. I just like I yeah I don't yeah. it's just empty it's just it's, not really it's just a there. bunch of nothing yeah <laughs> but yes. it, it, it was so close to it could yeah. have been it could have been something interesting but instead we get a bunch of nothing very nearly Okay. So Yeah, so our average is a 2.1. This is by f- this is not by far, but this is by a small Samantha. distance. The worst yes. Samantha, yeah. Uh, do better. Do better. Have Samantha. a happier birthday. <laughs> well, All right, next time we're going to see her save the day. So hopefully that goes better. TBH, she saved the day this time. Sorry. She did. She's she did. saving the day. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, yes, join us next time when Samantha saves the day. Thanks, girlies! American Girlies is a production of the Baba Yaga Project. We are produced by Sam Gleave Raymond. We are hosted by Sonia Ann, Margaret Mathieu, and Hannah Sparwasser Soroka. That's me. Our music is composed and performed by Esther Ruth Teal. This episode was edited and mixed by Margot Mathieu. This podcast is brought to you by Patreon supporters just like you. If you would like to support the show, please check out patreon.com slash Project for bonus content and extra goodies. We are at Baba Yaga Project on Twitter and at the Baba Yaga Project on TikTok and Instagram. 